you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to turn to Luke. We'll be in Luke 14, 12 to 24. Luke 14, 12 to 24. You guys are brave. <laughs> Thanks for making it out here. I have an observation to make. Those who travel the furthest are here. Those who live the closest are not here. Just saying, just an observation. I'm, I know where a lot of you are coming from, and I'm impressed. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for this Christmas season where we worship Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Father, prepare our hearts during this Advent season as we remember the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we look today at Luke, take your word and apply it to our lives. Challenge us, encourage us, spur us on. Because we want to live properly and rightly in response to Emmanuel, God with us. The salvation you wrought through your son on our behalf. Guide our time, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. His Italian mother named him Mark. He was actually named after the second gospel writer, Mark, because she wanted him to always tell the gospel truth. She wanted her son to grow up to be a truth teller. And the fact of the matter is, we now know historically and archaeologically that her son Mark was a truth teller. It's interesting because in the day that he lived in the 13th century in Europe, they did not believe that Mark was a truth teller. They believed that he fabricated much of what he talked about and wrote. At age 17, he left Europe. He went on a 25-year journey. When he left Europe, he went through the steepies of Russia, the mountains of Afghanistan. He went through the wastelands of Persia. He went through the Himalayas. He arrived in China. He was the first European to spend an extensive amount of time in China. Through a series of events that we don't have time to talk about today, he became the favorite of the Kuba Khan, the most powerful leader on the planet. In fact, he became an official in the Kuba Khan's court for over 17 years. He was the first European to see paper money. He marveled at the power of gunpowder. He would talk about the Kuba Khan's wealth, far exceeding anything he had ever seen in Europe. He talked about the palace of the Kuba Khan, a palace that he claimed could seat 6,000 for dinner, which each person having a gold plate in front of him. We now know that to be historically accurate information. 
He was the first to taste extensively a Chinese cuisine called pasta, which, of course, he took back, as did others, to his land of Italy. He was a man that marveled at the technological advances. He saw the mixing of metals that would not be replicated in Europe until the 18th century. He saw a technological giant that had no parallel in Europe for another 500 years. After 17 years serving under the Kubakan, he filled up a boat with gold and silk and spices and returned to Veneza or Venice. When he began to tell what he had seen in China, the village priest came to visit him and encouraged him to confess and repent of his lies. His family told him to confess and repent. On his deathbed, again, his family and the village priest came and they pleaded with him to confess. And with his last breaths, he steeled his jaw against them And he made this statement, even the half has not been told. And of course, we can read the other half in the adventures of Marco Polo. You probably knew all of that and much more of Marco Polo. We now know that as we compare what he wrote with what we know from history and archaeology, But he did indeed make that trip. He did indeed observe most or all of what he wrote. The problem with Marco Polo and 13th century Europe is he was so far ahead of his time. 13th century Europeans could not envision a preferred future. They could not envision some kind of culture that was so superior and advanced to theirs They just couldn't grasp it, and therefore they decided that what Marco Polo was saying was a lie. They couldn't grasp the future. That's exactly the problem Jesus has. As he dines with a Pharisee on the Sabbath, the Sabbath, he begins to tell them of a preferred future. He begins to tell them of a banquet that far exceeds anything they could ever imagine. He tells them of the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 12 to 24. Luke 14, verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. 
but they alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry. He said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. As you and I begin, we remember the scene. Chapter 14, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is dining at the house of a Pharisee. And we need to tell you that things go from bad to worse. The banquet does not go well. We know that it is a Sabbath, it is a Sabbat, so it is probably after sundown on Friday, because the Sabbat is sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, and wherever Jesus is, it seems like sick people find Jesus. And so we have a man with edema, he is a man with some kind of disease, probably fluid around some of his tissue. That's what the Greek word suggests. He's in a great deal of pain. And Jesus, as is typical of him, has mercy on the man and heals him. And you remember that the Pharisees are scandalized. They have made what we call the oral traditions, the oral law contained in the Mishnah. These are extra-biblical rules and regulations. They have very little to do with Scripture. And some of these extra-biblical rules are what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. In fact, if you were to visit Israel, or you were to go to certain spots in Washington, D.C., or Philadelphia, or New York today, you would see many of these oral traditions still being carried out by certain Jews, Hasidic, sometimes uh, very Orthodox Jews as well, will carry out these extra-biblical rules. Some of these rules suggest that regardless of how sick an individual is, if it's the Sabbath, you need to leave that individual alone. And so rather than rejoicing that Jesus has alleviated pain in this man's life, some of the Pharisees are scandalized rather than being thankful that Jesus is a man of incredible grace, mercy, and compassion. Now, I know how this sometimes works. I've really never been very sick in my life, but every year I get a cold. I'm getting over it right now. And uh, from time to time, I'll sniffle, and I, I look out, and I can see exactly what's happening. Your eyes are closed, and you're saying, Lord, help the boy, help the boy. He needs more help more than normal. Help the boy. And then afterwards, a few of you, doctor or nurse or PA types, will come alongside me and suggest that I need to do this or that and suggest how I can improve my health situation. And I I greatly appreciate that. And that's just for a couple sniffles. Here we have an individual who's really sick. Jesus heals them. And rather than rejoicing, the people are scandalized. In addition, you remember last week, we noted that 
in verse 7, individuals are looking for the best seat in the house. And I mentioned last week that it's the front row, and look at this, unbelievable. The front row is filled. I am so impressed. Table 18, look at that. They have little signs that say table 18 on it. They remembered the illustration. Thank you. It warms my heart. So they, they have filled the best seats in the house. Table 18. And Jesus has rebuked them because they are always looking for the best seats. In addition, Jesus rebukes them again because he notices what happens. All of these individuals are inviting their friends or relatives or the rich people in town that they might benefit themselves from the invitation. So Jesus says to them, he says to us, when you have a feast, think of individuals that might not have a place to go. Think of individuals that might not have a family in town or might not be uh, invited out normally and invite them. In this particular text, it happens to be the lame, the blind, the sick, the crippled. It might be different in different cultures at different times, but Jesus wants us to think of those individuals who have incredible need, and he wants us to remember them. Now, I wonder who that would be in your life. I wonder who it would be in my life, somebody that we need to remember, somebody that God sets on our minds that we ought to invite to include that they might have a place to go. Jesus cared and cares for the least of these, so must we. I love verse 15. Verse 15 kind of makes me laugh. Jesus has kind of ruined the party. Now, they deserve it, but he's kind of ruined the party, hasn't he? I mean, this is the sinking Titanic. He's healed somebody, and the Pharisees are annoyed. He's talked about the best seats, the table 18 seats in the house. He's encouraged them to invite the very people they didn't invite. And there's always somebody who wants to rescue the party. In the Myers-Briggs, it's an extrovert. It's somebody who carries, uh, cares about intuition, feeling, perception, ENFP, it's that kind of individual. So he pipes up. I love what he says. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, this party is sinking fast. And he says, let me just tell you, blessed are those who are part of the kingdom of God, this banquet. And he's right. And he's also wrong. He's right because... If you are part of the kingdom of God, if you're part of the marriage banquet of the Lamb, if you get to go to heaven and enjoy this incredible banquet that kicks off eternity, it is going to be a foodie's delight. It is going to be thousands of uh, calories dancing on your head, but never in your waist. It is just going to be a wonderful place. Isaiah writes about it in Isaiah 25, the sixth verse. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. If one truly knows Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior, if one have asked Christ to come into one's life 
to forgive one of one's sin and to become one's Savior, then one will spend all of eternity with God, and that will be kicked off with the marriage banquet, the celestial banquet of the Lamb. So in this, he is absolutely right. But he's also wrong. You see, he makes the assumption that just because you're in the presence of the Pharisees, the religious lay leaders, or you're in the presence of the Messiah, Jesus, or you're taking part in spiritual talks, either with the Pharisees or with Jesus, if you do enough good works, you do enough good things, you're humanitarian enough, then you will spend eternity with God in heaven. He makes that assumption. It's a dangerous assumption. It's actually an unbiblical assumption. So in response to that, Jesus then gives the marriage banquet of the Lamb parable. It's a parable that one needs to respond to in a positive way. And so we begin in verses 16 and 17 and 18, and we see that a man is going to throw a banquet, and he sends out a herald to invite many to the banquet. The herald is proclaiming the good news of how to get to the banquet. This is like evangelism where you and I go out and we share, we go and share the good news of Christ. You'll also notice that this particular banquet comes with two invitations. We have an invitation early on and an invitation the day of the banquet. That's because in those days, very few would have had a calendar and so you'd be invited and you would want to remember when, but you wouldn't write it down. You knew that a second invitation was coming. It might be akin today to you getting engaged and you're going to get married and you pick the date and you send out a little postcard that says, save the date. And then a little bit closer, you send out an invitation of the very day that you ought to show up. So the herald comes walking through the streets. And the herald says something like this, two Saturdays from now at five o'clock at the Heinz house, we are going to have a party and you are invited. And the herald goes through and says, will you come? Yes. Will you come? Yes. And the herald keeps track of all the individuals who have responded that yes, in two weeks on Saturday at five o'clock, these individuals will be coming to the banquet at the Heinz house. Then the day of the banquet arrives. There's been all sorts of preparation. Food has been made. The place has been tidied up. We're ready for lots and lots of people. And so we send the herald out again. And as the herald walks down the street, he or she is looking for the very people who already have responded yes. And he spots one, goes up to the individual and says, remember, today at 5 o'clock, there's a banquet at the Heinz house. And the individual says, oh, I just bought a piece of land. I've got to go and look at the land later on. I can't make it. Please excuse me. And Harold's a bit disappointed, walks down the street, sees another individual and says, remember, today at 5 o'clock, there's a banquet at the Heinz house. And the individual says, oh, I just bought five sets of oxen. I've got to go and inspect them. Please excuse me. 
and the herald again is disappointed. Walks further down the street, runs into a young couple and says, ah, you remember today is the day of the banquet. And the guy says, well, today was our wedding day. You're going to need to excuse me. I can't make it. And on and on it goes. Now, at first glance, these excuses seem perhaps reasonable, but they really are not. Let's take them one by one. In those days, land was rather expensive. It was hard to get. In the land of Israel, land was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. In fact, you weren't to sell your uh, inheritance land. And if you did, you actually would get it back on the 50th year, the Jubilee year. Land was to stay within the family. So if somebody actually were selling land and you would buy it, you would never buy it sight unseen. First, you're going to lose it on the Jubilee year. So it's not the greatest of investments. But second, it's very expensive because it's very rare that land comes up for sale. You would never buy land sight unseen. You just wouldn't do it. So it's kind of a lame excuse. What about the five set of oxen? Well, a rich person had one set of oxen. It's almost unheard of to have five set of oxen because a set is very, very expensive. This is an investment. And who invests in five set of animals without inspecting the animals first? That would be a very foolish thing to do. You would never do that. And so it's kind of a lame excuse. Now, the last excuse, you might say, well, all right, it's, it's their honeymoon. But I want to back up and say, who two weeks out doesn't know they're getting married? Is this like, a, a, I don't know, a, a bride that you purchased from a, a book or something? I mean, who doesn't know you're, you're going to get married? Did she just show up on your, your porch that morning? It's kind of a lame excuse. And yet these kind of excuses will keep people from the kingdom of God. Let's think of them today. The first excuse is about land. It's about possessions. We live in a very materialistic world. How many individuals have as their God a possession or something they want to own and they're idolatrous towards things and because of their idolatry, they never have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're a hedonistic, materialistic world, and for far too many, people have replaced the one true living God with a possession as their God. Possessions do keep people from the kingdom. But think of the second one, five set of oxen. This is our job. Jobs are a good gift from God. Sometimes we think of work as part of the curse. That's not true. There is work prior to the curse. There'll be work in heaven. Uh, the curse was that the land would be very difficult to till, but it's not work itself that's the curse. And if you have a good job that provides well for your family, a job is a blessing from God, and yet they've turned a blessing from God into an idol that keeps one from 
worshiping the one true God, one becomes a workaholic, perhaps. We remember in Colossians 3.23, work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. We as Christ followers ought to be the best employers, the best employees, the hardest workers, and yet we cannot allow our work to become an idol to keep us from the things of God. And then the last is the most tragic of all, that of family. The Bible is all over the value and the importance of family. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Parents, raise your children well. When they rise up and when they lie down, when you go out and when you come in, tell them all the things that God has done. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is the first commandment with a promise that it will go well with you and that you may live long in the land that the Lord has given you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Wives, respect your husbands. The Bible is all over family commands. We ought to be the most family-centered individuals on the planet. But we can't turn God's good gift into an idol. We can take all of these good gifts that God has given us, possessions and work and family, and turn them into idols. And then we take the, the blessing of God and we actually use it in a way that God never intended. And yet it can happen all the time. It can happen to Christ followers, people who perhaps work too many hours during the week and they say, you know what, I can't make it to corporate worship. Or perhaps I'm going to worship the Lord in my tree stand or on the golf course or wherever and we turn God's good gift of nature into an idol. We can do that. We can take the many good gifts God has entrusted to us that he's blessed us with and turn them into idols. That's what's going on in this particular case. The man goes out, the herald goes out, he invites many to come to the marriage banquet of the Lamb, but God's good gifts have been turned into idols, and they've turned people's eyes off of the Lord, and the result is idolatry, and people are far from the kingdom. When we allow that to happen, we abuse God's graciousness in our lives. As I thought about this, I thought about priority because that's what we need. We need the priority of the kingdom above the priority of our own kingdom. As I thought about priority, I thought about James Bennett who owned the New York Herald back in the 1800s. James Bennett was a very wealthy man. I am told that he owned two lavish apartments in Paris he owned a wonderful French estate. He owned a tremendous ship that was in various harbors throughout Europe. And he owned three large plantation-type places here in the United States, although he hadn't lived in the United States for 10 years. And in every one of these dwellings, he had multiple servants. And the servants made James Bennett their priority. So every day... The servants would make sure that the wine cellars were stocked. Every day, in all of the fireplaces, throughout all of his properties, fires were lit because he liked fires. Whether he was there or not, a fire was always lit in each fireplace. 
every evening they would turn down the cover to his bed in case he came into the house that particular night, they would be ready for James Bennett. And that's the priority they placed on their master. Well, thankfully, our master is not a human being. Thankfully, we don't have a master like James Bennett, but we do have a master who is Jesus Christ, if we know Christ as Savior, and he needs to be the priority in our lives. His values need to be our values. His priorities need to be our priorities. Unfortunately, and I trust not for you, some treat Jesus more like an afterthought. They treat Jesus like a filler. If it fits into their agenda, then they'll make time for Jesus. If not, there's always time in the future left for Jesus. But the text is rather shocking because after inviting individuals and them ignoring him, the master says, forget them, essentially. Go and invite others. In other words, there's a limit to the pursuit of God. So we have verse 21. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. While disabilities may be a hindrance on earth, they're never a hindrance in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, what is disabling now may be held as a a means of honor in the future. And they'll have a fine seat at the banquet of the Lamb. And so God cares for them. Now, verse 22 doesn't surprise us, but verse 23 might. It says, Go out into the highways and hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. <coughs> he's telling the heralds to go out again. And he's saying, Go out in the hedges and the highways. Who lives in the hedges? Who lives in the highways? I think it's the riffraff. I think it's the undesirables. I think it's the troublemakers. It's the people with rap sheets. They're the ones that live out in the highways and the byways. They're people, forgive me, just like us. They're individuals that do not deserve the grace of God. And yet the herald comes and shares. And then the herald urges us to go and be heralds further. You remember what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 14 and 15. He said, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless they are preached to? And how will they be preached to unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And so we become the heralds. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because a herald came and invited us to the banquet, and because God's Spirit drew us to himself, and because you and I believed in Christ, then you and I now become heralds to go out and go to the byways and the highways And we go out to the very riffraff that we were and still are except for the grace of God. And we invite others and others and others to come to know the saving grace of Jesus. Let me conclude this morning 
with a few final thoughts. First, I don't want to miss the finality of the offer. The offer has an end time. You remember last week, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed under man to die once. After that, the judgment. There is a finality of the offer of salvation. Once we breathe our last We have no other opportunity, no purgatory, no second chances. We see it in the text, verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. They had the opportunity. They rejected the opportunity. And the master said, go out and bring others in. I gave them the opportunity. They rejected it. Now I'm going elsewhere. There's a finality to the offer. And the finality is at the moment of death. So if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, he makes the offer once again that you would believe in him, receive him as Savior, that he may give you eternal life. Second, for those of us who have received eternal life, we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet I ought to be like the Bowery bum who is invited to the banquet of the king. And I say something like this. I ain't seen eats like this in all me life. Notice the fancy fixings. Me says, long live the king. Me says, long live the son of the king as well. That's what me says. And I'm filled with gratitude because of what Christ has done. I don't come to him with some kind of pretense as though I'm doing him a favor. I'm not. I'm the Bowery bum who is in need of incredible grace. And finally, even as a Christ follower, I've got to be careful not to turn God's good gifts into idols. God has given great gifts, gifts of possessions, gifts of work, gifts of family, gifts of nature, gifts of freedom, gifts of recreation. And I dare not turn God's good gifts into idols or use God's good gifts to keep me from doing the connect and the grow and the go that God calls me to do. Connect with others, grow in Christ, and go and share the gospel with others. Become a herald for the marriage banquet of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the incredible grace extended to sinners like us. Not because we deserve your grace or your forgiveness, but because you're merciful and kind and loving. And we thank you that Your son, Jesus, paid the penalty of our sin, which was death, and rose again as the first fruits of resurrection, offering eternal life to all who believe in Jesus and receive him as our Savior. Father, if some have not accepted Christ, I pray that you might give them the gift of faith, that they might believe and receive your son. And for we who have accepted your son, give us gratitude 
And may we guard our lives against idolatry, never turning your good and gracious gifts, of which we have so many, and which we are so grateful, but never turning them into excuses for not honoring you and making you the priority of our life. Thank you for this Advent season. Prepare our hearts, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.